we talked about last week about the gospel, which literally means the good news. And I think one of the main points I tried to make, and I talked to several people that thought that this was helpful to, to explain this. The gospel is news rather than instruction. So often um, in Christian circles, the, gospel, the word gospel is just thrown around without ever being defined. And practically the way most people hear it is the gospel or sharing the gospel with somebody means telling them what they need to do so that God will think they're worthy of his love. And maybe it's something you know, that seems relatively easy, like pray that God would come into your heart, just make sure you really, really mean it, which sounds easy until you wonder if you really, really, really mean it. And then, you know, the next week you wonder if you really, really meant it last week, I better try again. That was my story um, in high school, just I, I better cover my bases and make sure this time I really, really, really mean it. Um, so the, 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 the gospel is good news, not about, it's not instruction about what we must do. It really, first and foremost, is news about something God has done. It was a word that was normally used about, uh, to announce a military victory that would change the lives of those who heard about it. And that's exactly what the gospel is about. It's news of what God has done. This week, we're actually now going to talk about why this news is such good news. And why it has to come. Uh, it's, it's a little strange. Usually you would talk about the context and then the news. It was like, I guess, normally the way you tell the story. But the way Paul starts in Romans is he announces this good news that a righteousness from God has been revealed. And then he gets into why did that need to happen. And that's what we're talking about tonight. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Romans in the New Testament. Uh, if you have that, we're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 16. I know the first two verses overlap, but the reason is because verse 18 starts with the Greek word that we normally translate for. It's not in the uh, NIV translation, so you might miss the connection. But actually where we're going connects back to where we've been. So we're going to read those first two verses again, even though we talked about them some last week. Here's Paul's words, God's word. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written in the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie 
and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Let's pray. Lord, this is a heavy passage. Because what you speak of here is heavy, sober reality. That this world... Mankind is not what you made us for. Things have gone terribly wrong. And it's seen everywhere. In every relationship. In every context. In every thought. In everything we do. In our hopes, our dreams, and our fears. The brokenness. The twistedness that sin has brought. Affects us all deeply. Lord, we thank you that you have been kind enough to tell us what's really wrong, and even more so that you have, that you have brought the gospel to rescue us from this present evil age, as you say in your word. We ask you now to help us not only to be sobered, but to be greatly encouraged that while your wrath is revealed, even more so, The gospel has been revealed, a righteousness from God that can be ours by faith. We pray that you'd even create faith in our hearts through the hearing and the preaching of your word tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, whenever I get up to speak, I I, I take the, the position that this is orientation to real life. I think one of the the problems with a lot of Christian stuff, is that it seems like an attempt to get you out of real life, away from the real world. Sometimes, you know, you'll hear worship leaders pray, Lord, let us just leave all the distractions of life at the door and just come in here and worship you. The problem, of course, is that God is intimately involved in all the so-called distractions of life. He cares about every bit of it. And so when we come to gather here together to hear from God's word, what it's about is about getting orientation to reality and to life. It's about shaping and molding us to understand what is real, what is true. In a world of so many competing voices and ideas, what is real, what is true? What can we carry with us as we walk out of here and we face 
all the situations that we face, what can we depend on? And God's word is that thing. And God speaks truth to us here tonight. But it's not the kind of thing that's easy to talk about. It really isn't. I mean, one of the, one of the reasons in RUF we tend to um, almost every semester go through a book of the Bible is because there are things that are hard to say in the Bible. But I hope you realize it's worse to skip them. I can just tell you, when I was a senior in college, I had some of these theological ideas that friends of mine held to that I thought were very upsetting and troubling, and I didn't want to even think about them. And for a long time, I would say, I sort of existed in sort of this infantile state because I didn't want to grow up. And, um, you know, all I can tell you is it was like a spiritual renewal when I finally decided that I needed to read the Bible and think about some of these things. Now, what we're talking about tonight is about what's wrong with us. We're still in the context of the gospel has been revealed. A righteousness from God has been revealed. But now we find that something else is being revealed. And it's God's wrath. And who wants to talk about that? We live in a world where nobody likes to talk about that or to think about that. I don't know half of you very well at all. Maybe I remember most of your names at this point, but you know, I'm really even kind of fuzzy on that. But I have no idea what you think about the passage that we read. But I know what I think about it. I don't like it. There are things in here that I wish weren't in here. Why does Paul seem to go out of his way to single out homosexuality? What, who wants to get up and talk about that in this day and age with college students? But we can't edit God. We need to understand what is it that's being talked about. And I don't think that's the focus of this passage, but I think it's important to talk about, so we'll get to it. We'll talk about it. The point is, in RUF, we take God's word seriously, whether we like it or not. And I don't, just, I don't want you to ever think that I like every bit of every verse in the Bible. As a matter of fact, a guy that, that I've learned a lot from, a guy named R.C. Sproul, said one time that the best way to grow as a Christian is to go through the Bible and underline everything you don't like and then meditate on that. Because either you need to change or God needs to change. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that Paul writes some things in his letters that are difficult to understand. I love that one of the apostles said that Paul is difficult to understand sometimes. That's helpful to me to think that. Later in this same letter, Paul is going to talk about an issue that he has, which is, God, why haven't you saved all of my fellow countrymen, the Jews? And he says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart. So don't think that Christians are people that just sort of say, yay, yay, to everything God says. There are things that God says that are difficult. There are things that we wish he didn't say. Or things that we wish he would explain why he said them. All right? So what do we have to deal with here tonight? Well, this is a particularly important passage for orienting us to reality. Because one of the main issues that I think confuses people and affects your life every day is what's really wrong with us. In other words, God is going to offer his perspective to us tonight on what's really wrong with us and the world that we live in. Now, the first thing he says is that God is revealing himself 
through the creation. Actually, it's not the first thing he says, but it's the first thing I'm going to talk about. He's revealing himself through his creation. Look here at verse 19 and verse 20. He says that this, this, the wrath of God is being revealed because men are suppressing the truth by their wickedness. So the wrath doesn't come first, even though he brings it up first in verse 18, but the wrath is a response to what men, mankind, ladies, you're included in this, sorry, it's a, it's a response to what God has revealed, what God has spoken, and then mankind responds in a particular way, and then the wrath of God comes. So we're going to take it sort of in the order in which it actually comes to us. So we're going to talk first about what does it mean that God has made it plain to them in verse 19, about how his invisible qualities have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. This is what theologians call general revelation. It's the idea that whether you ever read the Bible or not, God has spoken to you and is still speaking to you. We used it for a call to worship. Bethany read, led us in, in praying Psalm 19, that the heavens declare God's glory. And it's an interesting word there in Psalm 19 because it's not a passive word where if you dig into, you know, looking at the creation or, or you get really into creation science or whatever you think about all that stuff. It's not saying that it's there for you to figure out if you decide to explore it, you'll discover that God is in the creation and in the atoms and whatever. That's not the point. The point of Psalm 19 is God's world is proclaiming, preaching that he is a good God and that all is not right with the world. It's general in the sense that it goes out to everybody who's ever lived. It's also general in that Paul does not say here that you can figure out the gospel by looking at the stars. But he does say that you can realize a lot about there is a God and he cares about how we live and we've not lived well. Paul is saying that that basic message has been clearly understood but there's a problem. Nobody likes it. And so he says, not just that people don't understand. No, it, it's, much more, it's much more personal. It says that mankind suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what we're finding here, here's what Paul is saying. If you want to understand what's going on, here's the way to think about it. God is speaking. Everything that God has made is stamped with meaning. And yet... All of us are fighting against that meaning and trying to make the things that God has stamped with meaning mean something else. How, how does this work out? I'll give you an example. God said that you are made to glorify him and enjoy him forever. But we don't often live that way. We often live very different meanings. We live meanings like, the purpose of my life is to get as many friends as I possibly can. Now, God said that's not what you were made for. And if you live in a way contrary to the meaning that God has stamped you with, there'll be all kinds of heartache and brokenness. God has said that work is a good thing, but it's been cursed by sin. But God has nowhere said that you were created just to work. No, he created the Sabbath. And so if you work all the time without ever resting, 
You're trying to say something different about what you mean than the meaning God has stamped into you. Uh, I'll give you another example. This, this one is often interesting. People look at the stars at night sometimes and just think, man, we're so tiny. We're so insignificant. I just don't matter. But Psalm 8 tells us that when we look at the stars, what we really should think is, what is man, O oh God, that you are mindful of him? In light of the hugeness of the galaxies, yet you pay particular attention to mankind? When you look at the stars, you shouldn't conclude, I'm so puny. You should conclude, I'm so special, because that's the meaning that God stamped onto each and every human heart. All right? Now, the, the culture is basically a dialogue with God about the stuff. Everything that you have, what you're wearing, the music you listen to, the movies you watch, the books you like, everything that you're involved in is in this sort of tension with God and what he said it all means. In some cases, in some cases you respond well and you amplify God's meaning. But in some cases, we fight against that meaning. Death is a good example. Death, I, I remember my wife used to work at Vanderbilt Hospital. And I don't know if you know this or not, but nobody dies at Vanderbilt Hospital. It's pretty cool, huh? People expire all the time. The, the, the word death is not really welcome in the hospital. Well, you see, God has said death means something. Now, this doesn't mean that you conclude that the particular death of a particular person you knew, that you can figure out exactly what that meant. Don't go there because the scriptures don't encourage you to go there because God has not revealed what that meant in that kind of particularity. But scripture does teach us that death means sin has entered the world and all is not right. Now, you can try to erase that word from your vocabulary and pretend that that's not true. You can pretend that it's just another part of life and we transition into another life. But no, death is a great enemy. And not only does God's word say it, but the very creation itself says it, okay? So that's God's general revelation. And mankind is fighting against this. Now what God says here, and we're going to talk more about this next week. We're going to talk about this issue of idolatry. So I'm not going to get into it in great detail tonight. But here's, here's the point. God is gracious and kind to tell us that at the heart of what's wrong with us is not we do the wrong things, we break the rules. That's not the heart of what's wrong with us. Neither is the heart of what's wrong with us that we think the wrong things or that we feel the wrong feelings. The Bible says ultimately beneath all of that is the issue of worship. Worship. Now, that's a strange thing for me to say, because most of us are accompanied to thinking of worship as singing. Worship equals singing. And the worship at RUF was pretty cool. I don't know all those songs, but, I, you know, I want to learn it. Whatever. I don't know what you thought about it. But what I want you to understand is the worship was not the singing. All of your life is about worship. You're living for something. There is something that has weight in your life. And what Paul is saying here is the basic problem with mankind is that they, they suppress the truth of God that he's revealed. And instead of worshiping and glorifying God and giving thanks to him, they've instead exchanged the glory, giving glory to God and given it to other things. Now, it's interesting in the Hebrew, the word for glory also means weight. 
and weighty. And it helps us to understand what is this sort of spiritual Christian word that we throw around a lot. Lord, I just want to glorify you. Great. What in the world does that mean? It basically means to consider something weighty. What, what is weighty in your life? Is it your parents' approval? Is it your bank account? What is it? Because, see, I can tell you that tonight, the God of the universe, who made heaven and earth and all that is in it, sent his son to live and die in your place. And that if you've come to him by faith, he thinks you're awesome. Because he looks at you and he sees you as somebody who has loved him from all their heart perfectly because that's what Jesus did. And you get credit for what he did and what he felt. That's what the Bible says. And you know what? And I might be talking to you about, yeah, I know, but so-and-so hasn't called me. And I don't think he really likes me. It's like, okay. So here you've got, you know, the God of the universe and what he thinks. And then you've got this boy and his approval. Which one is more weighty? And that gets you to what is really ultimate for you. And it may not, see, the, the, tr- the trick is, a lot of times, for people who want to follow Jesus, they can kind of pursue Jesus and these other things that are weighty at the same time, and everything seems like it's okay. But sometimes there'll come a moment when you have to decide which is ultimately more weighty. What Jesus thinks about you, what he wants you to do with your life, is that more weighty than what you want to do, Right? That's what it means. What have you given glory to? What is ultimately weighty in your life? That will help you understand so much about yourself and about the world you live in. And and we're going to talk more about this next week because it's one of the most important things for you to understand. It's not only important for you to understand what's going on, but how to change. Because, see, if you don't understand this, You may think the problem with me is I just don't try hard enough. I just need to try harder. I just need to study more or I just need to spend a little more time doing this or that or practicing or whatnot. If I just tried harder, all the things that I really want and I really hope for will come true. If I just worked out a little more, if I just made myself look a little better, if I dressed better, if I made more money so I had a better car, whatever it is, We think about all those kinds of things. If you don't understand that ultimately your problem is not that you don't work hard enough, it's that you don't worship the right thing. You are going to be hitting your head up against a brick wall for the rest of your life. So it's good and gracious of God to tell us this bad news because it dispels the illusion that having everything you want is within your grasp if you just tried better. Or you just bought the right thing. That's the particular version that's so, um, so seductive in our culture right now. See, for a long time, it's been the basic American idea that you could be whatever you want to be if you just worked hard. But in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a shift. Now it's you can be whatever you want to be as long as you buy the right things. As long as you wear the right things or you do the right things. So it's, it's sort of like the American utopianism combined with consumerism. And it's very powerful and it's very seductive. But God says, no, your problem is not you don't have the right stuff or the right friends or you don't do the right stuff or you're not talented enough. That's not your problem. Your problem is what is ultimately weighty in your life. And even if you're a Christian, as we'll get to in Romans 7, you'll find that this tension is still going on in your heart. 
There are times when things besides God are more weighty and more valuable and more beautiful to you. That's what's wrong with us. That's what's wrong with us. And our thinking and our feelings flow out of that. That's what Paul's saying in verse 21. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. But their thinking then became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there's the rejection, the refusal to worship God because we would rather worship things that seem more in our control. That's what it's about in a lot of ways. The problem with worshiping God is he's God and he doesn't take orders from us. And a lot of people are following God and think they're following God and they love God until he doesn't act the way they want him to act. And then they're tempted to chuck the whole thing. When maybe what's being exposed is God is not the ultimate glory in your life. That's what Paul says is going on, right? The problem is much more severe. It's not just a breaking of the rules. The relationship mankind has with God is more a rupture of relationship because we refuse to listen and glorify him and give him thanks. All right? Fun. This is cheery stuff, isn't it? Yes. So there's a battle on it. Now, let me, let me just give you an example of this. Uh, one of my favorite examples. Um, though I know that there's people in here that are different places. I, I want to think about what does sex say? God, God has created sex. And he created it. He stamped it with meaning. And I think, you know, one of the places in our culture where there is the most tension between what God has said and what the world says is in the area of sexuality. God says that he created sexuality for you to connect in the most intimate way and to experience incredible pleasure to whet your appetite for heaven and the indescribable joys that await God's children. That's what God says it means. But the popular culture says lots of different things about it, don't they? They, they, some people try to make it say, I was meant to be worshipped. Look at me. Some people use it to say, I'm powerful. And I'll use what I have to get whatever I want. Or a lot of people in our culture try to use sex to say this, I think you're really hot. I like you. Not, I want to be connected to you till death do us part. Some people, more natural, I guess more naturalism would say it this way. I'm just a mass of pink protoplasm that responds to stimuli. And sex is need like food and shelter, has no bonding power whatsoever. I can just have sex whenever I feel a need. When I'm hungry, I eat. When I feel sexy, I sex. Right? And that's just how it works. But you know, you know that even though you're trying to make it say that, the meaning that God has stamped in it keeps breaking through. That's the reality we live in. We try to make these things say something else, but God's meaning is indelible. It can't be erased, and it breaks through no matter how much we try to suppress it. We can try and make God's creation mean something different, but it won't work. So, God reveals his wrath against us. And again, this is not a popular idea. But think about it. Just give me a second to think about it this way. What would you think of a father who watched his children ruin their lives and sell themselves into slavery without even being at all upset or angry? 
You know, some of the most insecure students I've ever worked with are the ones whose parents were the most liberal in, in sort of, I don't mean the political way, but in the sense that you're free to do whatever you want, honey. You just have to discover what's right for you. Those are the kids that grow up the most insecure and the most unsure of whether or not they're really loved. Now, I'm not saying that if your parents disciplined you that they always did it right. Lord knows Wendy and I, you know, be the, stand at the front of the line to say disciplining kids is so difficult. And after you have kids, maybe you'll have compassion on your parents. But I am saying that if, if your parents never get in your face about doing the wrong things, you'll always wonder if they really love you. And so while we may not like the idea about God's wrath, and understand that the word wrath is a different word than the word anger. And it's an important difference because Paul, what Paul and the Bible are saying about God's wrath is it is his settled response to wrong, injustice, and brokenness in his world. It's not capricious. It's not just sort of God losing his temper and blowing his top. It is the only appropriate response from a holy God to the mess that mankind has made of his world. Right? But we can try, again, to say, no, it doesn't exist. I would rather have a God who doesn't care and doesn't judge. I love this quote from Alanis Morissette. I got it about, I guess, about eight years ago now from Rolling Stone. And you might think, why would you love any quote by Alanis Morissette? Well, I love it, but I'm also sad about it. But I think she captures, really, the dilemma of so many modern people. She says this, I've realized that God has no preference about how we live our lives. I don't think God prefers one choice over another. He or she or it notes rather than judges. Once I realized that, it immediately made me feel more responsible for my own life. If God doesn't judge us, judge us, all of a sudden it puts the onus on us humans. We are the creative force. We are creating what our world looks like right now and will look like down the road. That quote makes me incredibly sad. Because while she thinks it's a great liberation, I think it's a job description from hell to be the creative force of the universe and to be responsible for everything. You know, I know a lot of you guys at this stage in your life, you work jobs that are really boring. And it's, and it's, it's horrible to have a boring job that you're so overqualified for. But you know what? It's death to go into work every day and know you can't possibly do what you're being asked to do. And if you're going to take on the responsibility of creating the world that we live in, that's a job description from hell. It is. So we can reject the idea that God judges, but she's right. If God doesn't judge, somebody has to. And I would submit to you that you're not big enough for the task. You're not fair enough. You're not righteous enough. And even if you could judge... You don't have the power to make things right. While a lot of people don't like the idea of a God who judges, all I can tell you is people from different cultures and at different times think that you're crazy. Do you understand that your objections to Christianity are very culturally conditioned? Most of the people in the history of the world, in most cultures, that have ever thought about the idea about whether God would judge or not, think that of course he is. If God doesn't judge, there's no hope for things ever being made right. 
And the Bible really, you know, was written to people who are not the powerful and the rich and the strong, but to the oppressed. And the oppressed people rejoice in God's judgments. Like it says in Psalm 97, Zion rejoices in your judgments. And modern Western people like us read it and we go like, who in the world would want to praise God for being a wrathful, judgmental God? And the answer is, anybody who knows what sin and brokenness is really like and knows that human justice can never make things right. I had a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, when I first got out of seminary, worked down at Christ Community Church in Franklin, got stabbed some 80 times by his son-in-law who hid in the dark in the garage and waited for his father-in-law to come home, stabbed him and killed him. And I ended up having to go uh, meet his two sons, my friend's two sons at the airport because nobody else had met them. I was the only one who knew them. I'd started to hang out with them a little, little bit. And I sat through that, that murder trial. And at the end of that trial, when the judge pronounced the verdict guilty, nobody cheered. Nobody cheered. Because you had the sense that we got what we wanted. He did it. Justice was served. But nothing's fixed. Human justice, even at its best, cannot put things right. Do you really want to believe that that's it? So before you reject the idea of God's judgment, consider the consequences and the weight. So, now as we're going to see, you know, in the rest of Romans 1, God, he talks about, and we'll talk more about this next week, this idea that man exchanged something, and then God gave them over. And I'll talk about that a little more. But let me just say something about homosexuality. Why does Paul single it out here? Why? Why does he make, you know, people like me have to talk about this? Because it's hard to talk about. But I think it's important to look at because I think people tend to go astray on this issue on one side or the other. First, it is helpful to remember that different cultures have different things that just seem commonsensical to them. And in Paul's day, the Jews in particular are on record in a number of places as thinking that homosexuality, which was practiced by many peoples all around them, the, the uh, Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Romans, uh, the Galatians, all in all, all, all kinds of people all over um, practiced homosexual acts. And the Jews considered it to be not the worst sin, but a particular grievous example of how God's natural order had been twisted by sin. They, they, they talk about it at times as a demonstration that things have gotten twisted. And, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. It's almost like you can't say anything without the wrong impression being made. But that's Paul's day, Paul's culture. Now, some people say, well, Paul is just reflecting that ignorant bias but he doesn't really agree with it because, you know, he's an apostle. Some people may say Paul does agree with that and we reject it because we can't accept this. And that's, that's you know, an issue to wrestle with. Is this a part of the Bible that you have to reject? Or can you, can you make some sense out of it? And some people would say, well, I just reject this part of the Bible, which is a way of saying I basically am going to pick and choose what revealed truth I want to adhere to, which is a way of saying ultimately... I'm the ultimate standard. I understand that. But then there's the other position that is, well, maybe Paul didn't really mean to condemn it here. He's just taking on the bias of his people and, and repeating it. 
but he doesn't really believe it. But then, of course, the question is, why does he bother bringing it up? Because he's, nobody's twisting his arm to use this as an example or to say the things that he says here. And his, his words are strong. There's no doubt that his words here are strong and they make us uncomfortable, right? Because I, I know everybody in this room has friends or family members who are gay. I know it, right? I do too. So you don't want to, you read words like this, you're like, oh, man, what if my friends see this is in the Bible? Um, what are we going to do? Well, there's another position that has been taken by some scholars more recently that what Paul's talking here about the natural order, what he's, say, what he's really condemning is people that engage in homosexual acts, but it's not, if it's not their own nature. But he's not condemning somebody that may have that natural inclination. I don't think that really works, honestly, as a, as a proper interpretation because of the Judeo context of this. For the Jews it was very clear that God is the one who determines the natural order, not your heart. So when Paul uses the phrase natural and unnatural, he's referring, as all the Jews did, to the order that God had set up in the creation. But as much as some people don't like that Paul says that's wrong, notice he doesn't say that the inclination is sin itself. He does refer to the act and the acts, and he also, and I think this is important, includes a whole lot of other sins. Now, in the course of his argument, you see what he's arguing is the way that mankind has responded to God has basically rejected what God has said, and then their hearts and their minds become darkened, and then God gives them over to doing whatever they want, and the end result is not just in the way we express our sexuality, but in all kinds of ways, brokenness. Like Bob Dylan says, everything is broken. And it is. Everything is broken. But this is a a particular example of that connection where it starts with the heart and it ends with things that shouldn't be done. But if you go down here the list, there's all kinds of other things. And here's where I think a lot of Christians go wrong. Either they say, well, I don't like the idea that God's judgmental, and I don't like that he, doesn't, that he says this is wrong because a lot of people disagree with God, and I just don't like that. That's, that's some people. And then on the other hand, you get people like, dang right, it's wrong, and, you know, and we need to make sure we tell everybody it's really the only thing that matters is whether or not people do this or that. And that's wrong, too. And Paul, like, see, in some ways, the Jews who are reading this letter are like, yeah, Paul, go get him. Yeah, 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 you know, get him. We like that. We like the condemning Paul, especially when he condemns those other people. But then he starts messing with them, right? Look at this list. And, and, and it's bizarre almost that the list includes murderers and gossip in the same list. I mean, how bad is gossip really? It's pretty bad. How bad is it to disobey your parents? I mean, does that really belong in the list with murder? But all of those, you see, are expressions of the twistedness and the brokenness that comes from rejecting God and a relationship with him and the ways that that flows into everything. When you basically reject God and his ways and you refuse to listen to what he said, the consequences are endless and myriad. And he gives a bunch of these things. Not so that we say, well, you know, it's all, it's all just a bunch of bad stuff and none of it matters. 
No, it's for you to understand that things are worse than you think. And that gets us to the good news, which is actually the first two verses. And the reason we need to look at those first two verses again is because in verse 18 in the Greek, it starts out with for or because, even though it's not in most of the English translations, verse 18 flows out of verse 16 and 17. In other words, the gospel is God's response ultimately to the, the wickedness that men have brought into this world. God is not just revealing his wrath, his wickedness, uh, sorry, his wrath against wickedness. He is revealing the gospel, the righteousness of God for us. The revelation of God's wrath, as bizarre as this may be to think about, is the beginning of the good news. The good news starts with God speaking truthfully to us about what's really going wrong. God doesn't just reveal his wrath to scare us or to freak us out or to make us toe the line because God's wrath can never change your heart. God's wrath, God's wrath is true and it's real, but it also is an expression of the fact that he loves and cares about his creation because if he didn't love us, his wrath would not come into the picture He wouldn't care. He wouldn't reveal his wrath. He would just execute it. He reveals his wrath. And he reveals that his wrath has been poured out on his son in the gospel. You know, God reveals his wrath to the world. I told you, death is is saying to the world, all is not right with things. But the cross comes and amplifies that message. Do you realize that? We're accustomed to thinking of the cross merely as good news. But before the cross of Jesus, Jesus dying on a cross is good news, it starts out as bad news. The cross comes to you and says, you deserve death and hell. You didn't deserve a helping hand. You didn't need merely somebody telling you how to live. You needed an innocent God-man to suffer a torturous death on a cross. Don't flatter yourself and think... That God loves you, you're so wonderful, and he just needs to sort of give you a little course correction. No, the gospel says you were dead in your sins and trespasses. That the wrath of God is coming against you. Paul in chapter 2 of Ephesians said we were by nature objects of wrath. And the cross comes and says yes, because Jesus In the garden, before he went to the cross, prayed, Father, if there be any other way for these people to be saved so that I don't have to endure drinking the cup of your wrath to the very dregs, then let this cup pass from me. And God spoke no answer. And Jesus said, nevertheless, your will, not my will, be done. And he went to a cross. And he went to a cross because he had to go to a cross. And he went to a cross because That's what you and I deserved. So the cross comes and amplifies the bad news and says, you think God's wrath being revealed is bad? The ultimate expression of the wrath of God was Jesus suffering on a cross. And if you you think the wrath of God sounds scary, look at what Jesus endured. But look at what Jesus endured. Look at what Jesus endured. When he said, it is finished, 
And when he rose from that grave, you can know that God's wrath was perfectly satisfied. Because if it wasn't, he'd still be paying for your sins. But Jesus was risen for our justification so that we could have his righteousness and so that we could know that God's righteousness was fully satisfied in what Jesus did. Christianity cannot be understood, guys, without the idea of God's judgment because the cross, the cross is at the heart of Christianity. It's not just Jesus going around telling people to love each other. He did that. But the heart of Christianity is what he did. And what he did was die on a cross because that's what we needed to be done. Richard Niebuhr said back in the 50s about uh, modern, more liberal theology, that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through Christ without a cross. There's a lot of people that sort of took out everything objectionable in the Bible. Don't like the idea of sin. We don't like the idea of a cross. We don't like the idea of God who judges people. Let's just have a God who loves everybody. And sometimes you hear, well, I don't like the Old Testament God of wrath. I like the New Testament God of love. Really? Romans 1.18 is in the Bible and it's in the New Testament. Really, our God who is a consuming fire is in the book of Hebrews. And the idea that he will cover you like a mother hen covers her chicks with her wings, well, sorry, that's in the Old Testament. So that whole thing just doesn't work. You don't have God's love without his wrath. You can't understand his love without his wrath. You can't understand the reason for his wrath without being led to the cross and finding the greatest hope imaginable. Thank God that not only is his wrath being revealed, but even more so, the gospel. Let me pray.